if you ask better questions, you get better answers. So like too many times people are asking yes, no questions and you get yes, no answers. But if you ask really like, and, and as you're saying, they have to kind of be genuine. Welcome to Decision Point, a podcast about overcoming adversity in sales and the growth that we experience in the process. I'm Brad Siemens. Joining Brad on today's episode of Decision Point is Del Zwazinski. VP of North American Sales from BZ. Dell has more than 20 years of experience with enterprise sales and is well known for his ability to grow and enhance businesses. What's what's a big risk that you took and uh, how, to, how to go and how to pay off? Yeah, I think there's several of them. I've, I've done seven startup companies. I think this is like my seventh or eighth startup company out of four different countries. So this is my fourth country that I've gone in. So I've been a couple in North America, one out of Holland, one out of the UK, and now one out of Barcelona, Spain. So I've been through a bunch of smaller organizations, tons of different learnings. I think one of the, one of the big, one of my very first ones that I went through was I used to be a coder. So I used to write code and oh really yeah in college i took programming classes new pascal java.net and then got into you know took a took a leap of faith going into sales and my first startup company i actually jumped over to run a project out of the uk for ubs so they're like hey we need someone to run this project in the uk you know, come over, you don't have any experience in the rules engine space, but we'll just put you out there. And when I jumped over, like they didn't close the business and all of a sudden we're like, okay, they're like, where do we put you? Cause we don't have another project for you. And so I kind of just got sucked into sales, you know, from that point forward, like the sales team was awful. I never really did sales, but they were just like, here, go do sales. And you know, we, I, stumbled my way through my first couple of sales, like failed a bunch of times, didn't know what I was doing, like brand new and just had some really good mentors that kind of say, you know, don't worry about the failing part of it. So I got a lot of lessons through that and learned what people really did and didn't like. And then we got bought by Fair Isaac Corporation. We got bought by a big company. And then I went back into sales engineering. So I kind of went from professional services into sales, back into sales engineering and, you know, I got to a place where I wanted to go back into sales. And I remember the VP of sales at Fair Isaac, a uh, really good mentor of mine. And he goes, look at, he goes, I think you can do it. He goes, I'm going to throw you into the deep end of the pool and you either sink or swim. That's it. And so threw me into the deep end of the pool. And, you know, there were some failures, but I think you just, in you, you have to keep going. Like there's failure and then there's like learning from failure and then keep going. And so you know, I lost a couple deals and got frustrated. And he said, look at you just keep following the process, be consistent, do the foundational pieces in sales and you'll be okay. Now, was there a period of time where you felt that it sounded like you got your roots in coding and then you're going to get into sales? Did you identify as a developer for a long period of time? And if so, was I, there a period where you were like, can remember like, okay, I'm no longer a developer. I'm a salesperson. Uh, yeah. And it kind of got into like, I did a couple of years of coding. And then what I realized, because I also played soccer in college. And what I realized is like, I didn't want to be in the lab my whole life. And I got really tired of like being by myself on the green screen, like writing code. 
and realized that I like to be around people. And that's where, that's kind of where the sales side, when I got out of school, I did a little bit of coding, but did more like services work. But what I realized when I wanted to get into sales, I can remember the exact time, 1999, it was a Y2K bug. I was implementing software in New York city for a company called American lawyer. And so I was doing a lot of work. I was like hours and hours and hours in New York city. And the project manager was super good, but she always wanted to change stuff up. She's like, Oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. I'm like, yeah, no problem. I can do that for you. No problem. I can do that for you. Eventually I had to say like, you got to go back to the salesperson because I just can't keep doing all this stuff for free. Like I was just doing a bunch of, like we would have to inside of the program, we would code all these SQL forms. And so she goes, ah, she goes, that salesperson, all he wants is his commission. And if I ever see, and he, she like goes into this <laughs> tirade, like New York, like tirade of like effing salesperson, this place ever again, I will kick his butt. And she just goes on and on. And I realized at that moment, the reason why people succeed or fail in sales is about integrity and about selling stuff that you can actually deliver or being honest and upfront and transparent in the execute in the value proposition uh, pass through. Like, hey, this is what we have. This is what we can do. Inevitably, in sales, you do have like some, you have some things where you're not a hundred percent spot on or truthful or whatever it is. Like, there is some stretching that has to end up happening. But in general, you should not sell stuff that you can't deliver on. Do you think that's getting like, you know, with, with free trials, people can put their hands on it. They can use the product. Do you feel like in a SaaS world that's gotten better than it was when you had to do an install and go on site? I think it depends. So yes, a lot of the trial pieces, yes. And it depends on whether you're true enterprise software or you're kind of not like your trial and your like SaaS, like there's this, there's this evolution of SaaS. You have like, true SaaS platforms that you can just kind of like spin up, start running, go, go through the process. Then you have like enterprise SaaS software that like, we don't give any free trials out and our, some of our competitors do, but we're selling to, you know, a quarter million person organization. So we have like the biggest global bank using the technology. And so it's hard to just spin up a trial. So it depends. I think there's a lot of bad salespeople out there. I think there's a lot of bad sales leaders out there. I think, you know, I think it starts with the leadership and, and works backwards. So I think, you know, we can blame salespeople all we want that they're not giving the right information or they're calling too much or they're sending too many emails or whatever it is, but the leadership is allowing them to do that. So, so talk a little bit about leadership. I mean, what are some of the keys? This is not a topic that we've covered on here, but, you know, sales leadership, I you know, I feel like can be a little bit of an elusive term. So You've been in a lot of places and it sounds like you've had some good mentors and good experiences. So can you talk about a healthy, what does a healthy, strong, growing sales leadership organization yeah, look like? I, I think it starts at the top always with, with the executive team, even the CEO, whoever it is that's kind of running the organization and drives the culture into the organization. And I think it also, a good leadership to me or good sales leadership to me has an individual component. So you don't treat everybody the same and people may not want to hear that, but the reality is everyone has their own things that they want to accomplish in life. Someone may want to make more money. Some people may want to have a better title. Some people may want to have a balance in life. And for me, 
too many leaders have kind of given blanket statements across everything and haven't individually coached people or they don't know how to individually coach people. They, they just, every, they, they lead more with an IQ versus an EQ. And I think that is the big difference in sales leadership. And I don't think there's enough training for leaders. Like where are people going to get training? Where are people going to get mentorship? If, you don't go do it yourself. No one's really helping you go do that. Like I have my own business coach. Like I go off and find my own business coach and I've been doing this for a long time, but I look at the best in the world. You look at every professional athlete. I don't care if it's LeBron James or, you know, you know, Tom Brady or any of these guys or, or girls, they have coaches and all these different places. So what, why are sales professionals not going to get these coaches? Do you, do you see a, I mean, there's definitely a lot of sales coach. I mean, there's definitely access to sales coaches, right? But when you think, when I think about sales leadership, I think about something, you know, a little bit, a little bit different. Where do you go for a good coach, you know, sales leadership coaching? Like where, if you were going to start the the search, where would you go? Are you going to go to San, think, are you go- Yeah, I think you look internally first to find out where your blind spots are. Like you got to be, you almost got to sit yourself down and say like, where are my blind spots? have a real good self-awareness of what you don't do well and go find coaches to help you in that place. I don't think there's, there's not like a Standler or like some kind of like sales methodology training. Right. I think it's taken me a while. You go through people, you find people that you trust. For me, it was about servant leadership. So I found people that really cared about the organization, cared about the people and understood how to implement process. I think that's the other part. Too many sales leaders don't know how to implement process or they implement some kind of process or they just take on like something from the past and don't make it their own and don't make it for the organization that they're running it for. So it's a good question. I don't have a great answer for you. I just, I keep doing it until I find people I really trust in and utilize the the equivalent of IQ into the EQ side. Yeah, no, I think that's great insight. What what, I, what was going through my mind is, you know, there's a uh, kind of an I, I think there's probably and maybe it's just because I'm in the sales space. So if you're not in the, if you're not in the sales space, you might not feel like this. But I feel like there's kind of an unlimited access to sales consultants and people that can coach. There's not a lot of conversation, and there's not a lot of places you can go to say, okay, let's talk about sales leadership, and then how do we build sales leadership in our organization? I wouldn't know where to. Uh, great, those are great things to think of that I'm actually thinking about as we're having this conversation. I don't know where you would where you would go. So that was sort of what what prompted my Yeah, and and a lot of my friends like what I'm learning going through all these startup companies and and even friends of mine that are startup businesses, they're always trying to find out like how do I set up a sales organization? Where do I go to set that up? How does it work? So not the big established companies, but there's a lot of like start I I'm com- I'm combining like startup and high growth companies yeah. together because they kind of have the same problem. Like startup companies are a little bit different, but the high growth companies, like they're doing 10 million in ARR, they're doing 15 million in ARR, but they want to scale to like the next level. And you just have to make sure you have all the processes in place. And then what worked for you getting to 10 million is not going to work for you getting to 50 million. And you got to make sure that there is some scalability, but you don't scale everything. Like the human aspect of it, you can't really scale. And it takes that coaching aspect or that coaching ability to really understand what people want and how they, how they, how they interact with others. Like what's, what motivates them? 
That's what makes good salespeople. So if you can figure out individually what motivates people, then you can actually be a better sales leader. But do you think the top most top performer sales reps are motivated by money? I would have said five years ago, probably yes. I think today it's different. Most top salespeople have made a bunch of money. Like I'm talking with people today that have made a ton of money and they want something, they want to sell cool products. They want to change the way people are doing things. They want work-life balance. Like this whole pandemic thing, I think has opened up a lot of people's eyes and they're like, hey, I don't need to travel through 250 times a year. I can travel, you know, whatever, a hundred times a year and spend more time with my family. You know, I have a 16 and a 13 year old now and I got to spend the last two years like being with them. And that meant a lot to me because it just like everything stopped. So it just meant a lot. And so for me, the pandemic has been great to be able to spend that time with pe- with my kids and my, my wife. So uh, how do you th- bring up the pandemic? How do you think that sa- do you feel like sales has changed since the pandemic? I mean, I, I read an article. I mean, there's definitely a work change, right? I think. I think sales changes every six months. Like I think people, people have it twisted. Like people, like it used to be like, I don't know, every decade things would change or you get this new sales process. I think the biggest challenge in sales today is people aren't changing fast enough. You know, between the pandemic and now, one of the big changes that I've seen is, are all these sales communities. So we talked a little bit about Rev Genius earlier, you know, Thursday night sales kicked in with Scott Lee and Amy Volus. You, you have all these new communities popping up. And for me, what's really changed in the last 12 to 18 months is I like I'm hiring right now. So I'm hiring two to three reps. And by next year, I'll have another six to eight reps that I'll have to hire. But I don't really care about resumes. Like I want to see your LinkedIn profile. I'm sitting in these communities watching who's active, who's not active. I have a lot more reach to people to go find the right resources for my organization. If you're not participating in LinkedIn and engaging with people or engaging in these communities, I'm really not interested in talking to you. So, so I know, so, so, so let's talk about, what do you think it's now? Why, why is that? Just because I think it's so easy. Like the, a resume is what you say you do. And the work on communities or LinkedIn or what you're, I can see it. It's gotcha. Amazing. It's what you're actually interested in. It's your actual thought. It's your thought process. It's, it's actually what, how you're thinking and interacting and what you're doing. Totally tangible. Like, you know, I can say to somebody, like, let's say I went to go talk to somebody and they said, well, what's your philosophy on XYZ? I'd be like, I write about it every day on LinkedIn. Like, what's your philosophy on XYZ? In fact, I'm in the process of, crafting and and structuring a book on leadership. So a lot of the stuff that we're talking about today, I'm actually writing a book on or crafting the the book around it because I think there's not enough content for it as we were talking earlier. So let's hop back on a topic that you sort of, you you threw out a couple of places and I'm sure this is going to be in the book, but EQ versus IQ in sales leadership. Do you think these communities have helped the, improve the ability to find someone with a higher EQ? Like, do you feel like that's coming out in the community? For sure. Absolutely. 100%. Because what you can see is how they react, how they're, how they're interacting with people, how they engage. And then you take it offline. Like, you see stuff and in, in interact with people in the community. I get 
hit up probably four times a week to have a conversation. Like, hey, can we grab a virtual coffee? Hey, can we do this? Hey, can we do that? Hey, I need mentorship. You know, someone just pinged me out on um, Rev Genius and said, hey, I'm really looking for a leader, uh, a mentor on leadership, not necessarily in sales, but just in leadership in general. Like, what do you think about it? Would you help me? Yeah, absolutely. That's why the whole leadership, mentoring, training people is actually much easier now than it's ever been because there's a lot more people in the mix that you can actually reach out to. So yeah, I definitely think you can. You can watch how people are interacting on on LinkedIn. Like, Are they engaging on people's content or are they just commenting and being jerks? Which Josh Braun, he, he must have a lot of people sending him hate mail because I get, you know, every week he's bringing up somebody that's, somebody that's hated on him. I get stupid <laughs> stuff. Like I'll put out a poll and someone will be like, why are you putting out this poll? Like, and they'll have this like dissertation. I'm like, why are you spending the time to write your dissertation on this? If you don't, if you think it's stupid, like, <laughs> I, yeah, I don't look, I mean, internet's internet's fine. And I do feel like LinkedIn is, you know, historically is, you know, it's, it's getting more, more, maybe interesting people on it than it's had on it before as it obviously has become more popular. But so, so let me ask you a question about kind of sales leader, like sales leadership, coaching, startups. I mean, you, you know, kind of walk me through like at what point, or no, here's my question. Sorry. I, you, you said something that got me, you got, you made me start laughing. So then I got my, I got, I got sidetracked. So here, so here's my, here's my question. How do you, on the communities, there's a big group of people who don't have, that are maybe not going to, like we sell a community, like, look, I sell a product to a community that's very active. There are communities that are not active on LinkedIn. And a lot of the strategies that are built out, like from a sales development process, like, Go talk to the person on LinkedIn, go interact with them, go have a conversation with them. Apply very well if you're selling a sales product to a sales organization. What happens when that doesn't exist? Because there are a lot of companies where going to having a social touch is not possible. Yeah, I, I get this question a lot. I think inevitably every brand is on LinkedIn or every brand is in the news or every brand's putting content out. Like if brands aren't putting content out, like they're dead. So there's content or something happening somewhere and you just have to do a little bit more digging. Like, Hey, the CEO just said this in the 10 K or had this interview on X, Y, Z, or like if the company's not putting content out, then they're probably not worth doing business with anyway. So I look at at a company level versus a contact okay. level. Okay. And then I utilize that content. What I tell my my team is let's utilize that content in your outreach. Because here's the other problem. LinkedIn's getting very spammy. Like the inbox, the news feed, like it's so spammy right now that people are actually having more success calling on the phone, right? So which leads into products like what you guys have where people are starting to pick up the phone. There's, there's two parts to the, the email or the content that you're delivering on LinkedIn. One is make sure the subject line is good enough where people actually want to read the content. Then if you get them to actually click into your content, make sure you're talking about them first. Like what's their problem? What are they trying to solve for? What did they say? Then say something about the industry and then say something about your company. And only one thing about your company. Like I see emails with like 400 bullet points. I'm like, why? Like, 
put yourself in their shoes. Like you can't digest it all. It sounds great. We forget as salespeople that we sell on a daily basis. Our buyers may only buy once every four years. So like, we just forget that. Like we're like machines and they're like trying to figure out like, yeah, they have all this information, but what information is good? Dude, that's such a good, that is such a good point is like you take for granted the fact that you're selling every day, but the buyer is only buying occasionally. Yeah. Like my buyer may buy once every four to five years. And so one of my big, like, I don't believe sales processes, sales process matters to me and to my organization. The sales process, no one on the buyer side gives two shits about the sales process. In fact, they're buying, they're, they're trying to figure out their buying process. Once again, going back to, they only buy every four to five years. These people don't even know what they're doing. And so you've got to help them through that process by asking really good questions or provoking them enough and being patient. Like we're not patient enough. And this, once again, this starts from the top, starts from the investors all the way down or whoever's running the company. You got to have a little patience, but you got to see momentum and progress. So you, you, you kind of clicked on something that I, that I'm kind of, kind of passionate about, maybe annoyed about, I don't know, but questions. (laughs) You know, I think it's really important as a salesperson when you ask questions that there's authenticity because I feel like unauthentic questions can be just detrimental to certain personalities. So I, I know for me, if I get stuck in the Sandler sales funnel, dude, I start I start fighting like hard. Like as soon as as soon as questions that seem obvious are being asked, and it's usually being done by, I mean, I go nuts. Like I just yeah, keep <laughs> it's, it's situational awareness, right? It's so situational awareness and and understanding who your buyer is or who you're talking to. Like this is the problem with big like bulk conversations. I'd rather we have 10 good conversations than a thousand crappy conversations. Like it's just much better for both sides. Like there's a value every conversation, you give me 15 minutes, I should provide value for your 15 minutes. Right? That's the way you have to think about it. How would you define, so is that how you would define a successful conversation is that the, the 15 minutes had, that you were able to provide value for the full 15 minutes? Like how did, you, you said, hey, I'd like to have, you know, X number of good conversations. How do you define a good conversation? Progress? Progress or disqualification. Like that's good progress. That's a good conversation. Cause then I know that I don't need to sell you anymore. Like the worst part for, and I sell in the enterprise space, right? So our deal site, our cycles are eight, 12, 18 months. Like they could be a long time. And so I'd rather much, I'd rather know a lot up front that, Hey, this isn't going to go anywhere. Or I don't have a project for a period of time. Cause I don't have to waste my six months. Too many salespeople build fake pipelines. Like the last couple of organizations I've gone into, the first thing I do is I look at the pipeline and try to figure out what's real. And then we call through it. And then you can start really building good pipeline. One more thing on questions before we go further. If you ask better questions, you get better answers. So like too many times people are asking yes, no questions and you get yes, no answers. But if you ask really like, and and as you're saying, they have to kind of be genuine. Like, Oh, they have to be be genuine. (laughs) I see way too many people ask questions just because they think they need to ask that question. And it may be like a good salesperson won't follow any script. Like they have, it's like, it's like in bowling, right? You know, you have to go down this lane, 
but you may have to put bumpers in there because it's not like it's going to, like, it's not always straight. Yeah. I, well, I can't, you know, I came across, so I don't know if I was having, I was having a conversation with maybe Kendra Warlow. Yep. Uh, uh, I think is who I was talking that, to. And, she's got so much energy. That woman. Oh man. Woo. Get, get yeah. you, some, get you some Red Bull. Yeah. She does yeah. have a lot of energy and she, she, she was fun to talk to, but in the conversation that I was having with her, I uncovered something that was kind of an aha moment for me. And it was this, I'm a proponent of, I'm a big proponent of a script, but not in the sense that I think it's tradition. At this moment, I, I realize why there's so much controversy over scripting. Here's the thing. I don't think you should have a scripted conversation with your client, but I do think you need to have a script. You need to have memorized the, the you need to know your stuff. And what happens, I think happens with the script is that people get confusing learning the material with executing the material and they're two separate things. And we try to combine them all on a script and do, do a two for one. So you need to know your stuff. I mean, you have, if you're going to be a good salesperson, you have to have memorized the material. Does it have to be scripted? I don't, not necessarily, but you have to have memorized what you're taking to market. You have to understand. Yeah. yeah there's, there's two parts here that's really interesting that you were just talking about. One is learning the material. That's one thing. But then understanding the material is totally different. Like you can, like, I remember going into college or wherever I was and I would study for an exam and I'd memorize it, but I didn't really understand no. it. Like, nope. so I'm learning it for that time, but I didn't really understand it. And so we need to get to a place of understanding so that when you're having a, com a conversation with your, your prospect or even a customer on like a customer success side, if they throw you a curveball, you can genuinely say like, hey, guess what? I don't know. I need to get you an answer. Because if you're in the script and they bring you nope. off your script, you like it's immediate to me. Every time I pull someone off a script, I can tell I can totally tell like they're they they can't handle the conversation. Yep. No, 100 percent So yeah, I just the script is such a such a controversial topic, but I like it in the sense that I think it's a good, it's a good way to under the script is a good initial understanding of the material, but I do not believe that you should execute it that way. On the flip yep. side, I don't believe that you should not know your stuff and then try to talk about something you don't know about, which is what... Well, this, the, the script is good because you can measure, right? If, yes. if everyone's just doing their own thing and they, there's no process, you can't measure it. Right. So then how do you make it better? Like, Correct. You have to have a baseline to make it better. The other side of this is like, what I find with people who've been in sales or been in a particular company for a long period of time, they know their stuff so well that when a customer asks a question, they're already assuming that they know the answer versus asking one more question. Like someone may ask a question, you'd be like, oh yeah, I know what you're going to say and it's X, Y, Z. Instead of being like, hmm, that's interesting. Why are you asking that question? Or what technology are you using for that? and allowing them to give you a response versus just having like this, this answer that you've already predefined. Well, I'm always shocked when you do that follow up. I mean, when you do that follow up answer, like, Oh, Hey, what, obviously you were, th you're thinking about something. Why, why did, why did you ask that question? I'm always shocked when, uh, cause a lot of times, most of the time, or maybe 80% of the time, it's not what I think it is. Right. Exactly. But, but when you've done it so long, like, I've seen reps that have been in, in seat for five years, three years, super successful reps, million, like making 
tons of commission. And I'll, li- I'll sit on a call and I'll be like, first of all, we didn't ask any questions. And secondly, like every question we asked, we assume what the answer was. If you just ask one more question, like you might have gone in a totally different direction and had a much more in-depth conversation. Like what you think they're trying to accomplish isn't necessarily what they're trying to accomplish. So you're totally right. I don't know why people don't do it. I think they get comfortable. Like these reps that have been in seat for, and trust me, the reason why I say this is because it used to happen to me all the time. When I was carrying a bag, I'd know my, like I would understand and know my script so well that I would just like answer before the question finished. And then I started understanding as I had kids, like you got to almost ask three whys because I'd, I'd say something to my kids. They would ask me like, why? And I'd tell them and they say, why? And then I'd ask them again, why? <laughs> so, like That's kind of where I got it from. Like ask three whys because there's really like, they don't truly understand and they do, they are very curious. So we got to have, we got to be more curious as a sales world. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. Like, you know, you need to be as cur- or as or more curious than your buyer, right? Because your buyer's curious. Yeah, I just think that, imp- I mean, empathy's problem. Look, you've got to care and you've got to be curious and you've got to really be uh, interested in what the client's going to say. I recently read the book, Good to Great, or I'd gone through all the Jim Collins stuff over the last, over the last month on Audible. And so the one thing that came up in Good to Great that I thought was interesting, and I think the same kind of idea applies to good salespeople is this. He said the good company, the bad companies, the bad ones, didn't want to hear anything but good news. So they were so focused on only having good news. So if you look, if you, if you, Theranos uh, trials on right now, if you listen to the trial, you listen to any of the podcast, any of the feedback, any of the news, every, they didn't want to hear bad news. They only wanted good news. So if you had bad news, they did not want to talk to you. Same thing at Enron, same thing at, you know, any of these big, you get fixated on good news. That same thing applies with a bad sales rep, a bad sales rep that is just focused on, on good news and yes, those, those are really alarm signals for how successful that person is going to be. 100, 100% on, 100% on. And actually a good sales leader will push them and say, did you ask XYZ question? What ends up happening is the sales, the sales rep doesn't really do this on purpose. The sales rep won't ask hard questions because they don't want to really know the answer. And the, because if they really know the answer, then they may not really have an opportunity. And if they don't really have an opportunity, then their pipeline is much smaller than what they projected. They so projected, it, right. It's a bit of an ego thing as well as a bit of a like self-preservation thing. So as sales, once again, we can blame the salespeople. But that's a sales leadership leadership. issue. I mean, if you you, start looking at sales leadership and say, okay, you've got to make sure that you're asking harder questions and making sure that the rep can answer the questions. And if they can't, that's okay. Like, that's the other thing. In sales, we have to make sure that sales people have the place where they can be wrong. Like, it's okay to be wrong. Like, it's okay to fail. Like, if you fail, like, as we started in the beginning of this podcast, you're going to learn from it. As long as you learn, you fail. Like, that's that's way better. And so I think salespeople in general, what I've noticed, especially over the last three, four, five years, they're really afraid to ask the hard questions because they're afraid that their pipeline is going to get diminished and then they don't know what to talk about anymore. Is that due to unrealistic like quotas and revenue. So, so, so. I thought you were going to go down this path. So that, so Scott Lee's just posted a great post today on 
LinkedIn on this whole thing. Go take a look at it. It's about quotas and setting quotas and, and putting quotas together. And in fact, it's funny because I'm writing the first chapter on expectations. So I think the biggest reason why a lot of people fail is expectations are set wrong. A lot of times, if you're going into an organization as a sales leader or you've been promoted or you're going through this process, even if you're in the organization, you get this quota set based on a bunch of variables that you may not have control over. And then you got to figure out how to do it. I think the unrealistic expectation in setting up quotas is because sales leaders are not willing to have courageous conversations to understand what reality is. Like we're always not giving true reality. And so we need that transparency to say, I understand Mr. CEO or board of directors, you want 50% growth, but based on you know X, Y, Z, it looks more like this. We'd love to get there. Like the stretch goal is great, but just know that this is, this is the reality of what we're living in. And I don't think enough people are willing to have that conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, in a lot of companies, the system, you know, there's a lot of pressure to not to, to, I mean, there's a lot of pressure to not ask questions, right. And not, not get to what, what's really, you know, what's really going on. I mean, I think, so as a salesperson, you know, I think a lot of sales guys think about sales as like your best sales are really smooth, right? The guy comes in, you sign, they just go through all the stages and they sign the deal. But that's not really how the best sales work out. There's usually a little bit of friction. Like if there's yeah. no if there's no rub, there's no buy, there's really no buyer. <laughs> well, and it goes back to like there's no sales process, right? There's only the buying process. So in the sales process, sometime in the sales process, preferably earlier than later, let's call it a third of the way into the sales process, we should be mapping the buying process to our sales process. So we're aligning them. As you get to the fifty percent mark, you're now have shared what you understand the buying process is to the customer and they're agreeing that that is the buying process like at some point we have to agree that this is the buying process and i think so does that sound like hey walk me through walk me through how you know how are you guys gonna you know hey like how are you guys gonna make this decision like who like tell it's, a, it's a little bit deeper than that actually i mean i think that's the easy way out i think the the way the way i project it is i actually build a spreadsheet of all the tasks that need to happen to get to go live. And then I work backward. So, okay, you wanna be live, Mr. Customer, in August of 2022. What are all the steps we need to do? Because once again, it's about value to the customer. The customer doesn't care when we want them to sign the contract. We right. want you to sign the contract by the end of 2021. No, December no. 31st is the, is the final day you have, or else you're not getting the discount. Like that's traditional sales. If, you, if we go to the customer side of the world and say, okay, you need to be live by the end of August because your current contract is up by then, good. Now we, have a, now we have a place that we can put a pin in and we can work backward into getting the value. So you, so you talked about discounting. So talk to me about the buyer process and discounting. Traditionally, you're right. It's, it's seller-centric discounting. Is that, hey, this is your trigger. Here's where we're going to discount. How would you leverage and use discounts in your process? Talk a little bit about that. How do you think about discounts? Um, once again, I, I think it's about the value to the customer. So if we know what the value to the customer is, if we know that they're trying to, I, I usually try to figure out what the what they're trying to solve for. So if you're trying to reduce operational expense by X amount in the next 18 months, then you can start making calculations for them on, hey, 
if you don't do that, then, or if you put off, you know, six months of decision, you're missing this much, much of revenue. Now, the other side of that or the, the operational cost. Now, the other side of that is like when you sell it, you have to deliver it. Like that's the other piece of it. Like too many people sell this projection and they don't actually follow through because the customer gets busy. The customer success manager doesn't know what the salesperson sold. So if I, if, if I was to run a really profitable SaaS organization, I'd make sure that whatever I said during the sales process, we both own. Let's say we want to reduce operational costs by 10% over the next 18 months. That's measurable and time bound. Like those are the two pieces that are super important. Then what I say is once we go live, let's start measuring it. You may not get to 10%. Maybe you get to 5%. Maybe you get to 15%. But we both have to agree and reset expectations along the way. Once again, that's why the first thing I talk about is expectation setting, whether it's salary, quota, value to the customer, that expectation has to be set. We have to agree to the expectation and then we have to measure the expectation because it's going to change over time. What, what do you do when they when they agree, but then they un, they unwind or unbound themselves from the all of a sudden things change? It happens all the time. I mean, you got to have the relationship. Like that's why with the joint engagement plan and the spreadsheet, I actually have them own it as much as I own it. So we have like line items in this joint engagement plan that have all these pieces. You have some things like, okay, we have to go through InfoSec. That's your line item. We'll do the InfoSec stuff, but you have to schedule it. You have to get the people involved. If you miss that date and we don't, we don't get to value, forget about the contract again. Like we're getting to value. You miss your August date because you were two weeks late of getting the InfoSec scheduled. That's on you, Mr. Customer. Like, and then you have documentation in this spreadsheet that they're the ones pushing it off. Too many times we make these agreements either on the phone or in emails that get lost forever. So the way we do it, the way we're structuring it in BZ, because we use our own product, like we have our own internet. So every customer gets their own community. And in that community, we have the joint engagement plan when you get to a certain stage in the process. We'll have our standard steps, which are anything that we need to get done all the way to go live, including like contract signature and you know reviews and all that stuff. And then you intermingle all the customer stuff. And then if they miss a date, you highlight it in red and then you structure another date. So you have to, you have to be diligent in the process. And at the end of it, you say, okay, we agreed to this. It's not like it's in writing. Like when I used to do it for real, when I carried a bag, I'd have the customer sign the document. Like you sign it. Like we're in agreement that we, we have this expectation. Right. I mean, I think it goes, account look, the, the, that's where the relationship is important, right? If you have a good relationship and then you have accountability, that's, that's, if you have a bad relationship and accountability, then you're, you know, shrug shoulders. Like not, so let's not get it twisted. Not every customer is a good customer for you. Yeah, that 100%. Time. So that's where we get twisted in organizations. Like, oh, we got to hit this number. So let's bring this customer on. Okay. That's fine. Like sometimes you have to do it and that's fine. But understand the implications going down the road. Like we all have decisions. I decided seven years ago, I was going to move down to Florida and enjoy the warm weather. Like everyone's got decisions like and choices. So, but you have to be willing to take any positive and negative consequences that happen in those decisions. Yeah, no, no, uh, no, for sure. 
All right. Well, we're getting towards the the end of the the time here. So let me let me ask you a couple a uh, couple more questions. Uh, question number one would be, or I guess the big question that I typically ask everybody is, what's the one thing you're most passionate about? Is it sales leadership? Sales leadership. I mean, at a macro level, it's sales. Actually, I should take it back. At a macro level, it's customer and customer value. Then, if I take one step down, it's sales. And then, like if I'm like right now today, I'm super passionate about sales leadership because I think the like if we look at sales professional like we lost the professional somewhere right so i i, I want to get the professional back in the sales and the only way you do that is through coaching and practice period i don't care what you're doing now so when i think about when i think about professional i think about two things i think about the movie 300 where he grabs all the where he's they're standing on the hill and he looks he's, he's got his guys to his left or his right, and then the farmers and the steel workers are to the right, and they're like on the hill, and he's like, "Hey, what's your, you know, what do you guys do?" And he's like, "I'm a farmer, I'm a steel worker." And then he's like, "Spartans, what are you? What's your profession?" And they're like, "We are Spartans." So I think of that, and then I think about the word amateur. So like the opposite of professional is amateur, and I think that's what you are referring to when you talk about being professional. You're not necessarily talking about somebody being like sales as a profession as much as you're talking about being professional in the work that they do but what, tell me your thoughts yeah i mean if you, if you want to be a good sales professional you're going to practice your craft you're going to listen to your recordings you're going to you know switch up your emails you know you're going to work you're going to grind my the three big things for me when i hire somebody grind and hard work i don't care what you do besides that you could be the smartest person in the world, have the most EQ, but if you don't grind and do hard work, I can't teach you that. Like that's something inherent to you. Second one is integrity. So we talked a lot about that in this podcast, like selling with integrity and making sure that what you sell, you can deliver and you can measure on. And then the last one is coachability. Hey, look at, like we started in the podcast, we fail, everyone fails. If, I, I like the fact that you said, like someone said, hey, I, I've never failed. Like, okay, you're not trying hard enough. Like if you don't fail, like you're not going to succeed. That's the way I feel. So for me, it's about practice. I look at the top professionals in every every sport, investment banking. You think these guys are not practicing? Like the Mal Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hour rule? You don't think that it doesn't exist? I think I think it does. All right, well, great. Well, Dale, it was awesome having you having you on. I hope you guys enjoyed that. As always, uh, if you want more information on the podcast, go to monsterconnect.com forward slash podcast. Uh, you can get last season's, uh, last year's episodes. You can get all the new episodes for this year. And as always, remember, don't let what you can't do interfere with what you can. Until next time. Monster.